Well, there, there are many promises in the Bible, right? In fact, many promises that we embrace and we cherish and that we love and we hold on to and we cling to. I have about a, a dozen of them in my notes. I'm not, I'm not going to read them all, but just as Lord leads, just want to just, just give you some of them. Perhaps one of the greatest promises is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Here's the promise. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a promise. And we cling to that promise. Uh, Matthew 11. It's a promise. Jesus says, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the promise. If we come to Jesus... We'll find rest in Him. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe another promise that's dear to us. <clears throat> James 1.5 if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given him. Just the promise in confusing times when you need wisdom, when the trials are coming upon you and you don't know, God promises us that if we lack wisdom, we just cry out to God and wisdom is to be found. That's a promise that we can rest on. Um, how about one more? John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are willing simply to confess to the Lord the ways in which we've sinned and failed Him. The promise of God is that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all these promises, right? We, we love and we trust them. And the reason why we can trust them is because Hebrews ten twenty three, He who promised is faithful. And as Darren read for us this morning from Titus chapter 1, that God cannot lie. That what He says is true and we can trust His, His promises. And God is faithful to fulfill all these promises. But one thing that's interesting about all these promises that I have laid out to you, and there are, are dozens more in all the Scripture is that um, we receive them only secondhand. All right, in other words, right, the Psalms were written to the ancient Jews, and the promises found in them were given to the Jews. But we then, as the people of God, by faith, receive those promises to us. But it's, it's kind of more secondhand. Or, or Jesus, when He spoke to His disciples, His promises were for them, but, but we as disciples can enjoy and join in those same promises. Or when Paul wrote his letters to the churches of the first century, we likewise, as the church, can receive those promises as well. The promises like Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. That so we can trust that. But can you imagine? What if you received a promise from God Himself to you directly, some specific issue that you're dealing with that God would give you a promise perhaps some some promise about your health perhaps perhaps some promise about your children or perhaps a promise about some business venture or a move or, or a job change wouldn't that be incredible to have God 
give you a personalized promise about what lays hold in your future? Well, in our text this morning, we're going to see a, a personalized promise come from Jesus himself to the Apostle Paul. So if you haven't done so already, Acts chapter 23 is where we're going to find this, this promise. And last week in Acts chapter 23, we looked at the first 10 verses of the chapter when, when, uh, when Paul was there before the council and had a, a spat with a judge and then split the jury. Well, this morning we're going to finish the chapter that makes our text, Acts 23, verses 11 through 35. The title of my message is this, it's a promise of protection, because that's the promise that Paul himself received from the Lord Jesus. Before I read our, our, our text, it's kind of a longer text today, we're going to finish chapter 23 today. I just want to set you up with context. Paul's returned from his third missionary journey, he's found himself in quite some trouble with the Jews. First of all, he was wrongfully accused by the Jews of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And as a result, they dragged him, these Jews did, dragged him out of the temple area and began beating him and tried to kill him. And were it not for a Roman soldier coming and rescuing him, he would have been dead. And then, if that wasn't enough, Paul couldn't keep his mouth shut. He was speaking to the same crowd that only moments before was trying to kill him. And uh, when his comments about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, when that came out of his mouth, uh, the crowd was in an uproar. And they shouted out, Acts twenty two twenty two, Away with such a fellow from the earth! We should not be allowed to live! And again, he's taken into Roman custody for his own safety against these hostile Jews. And a third time, on the next day, when they brought him before the Jewish council, Paul created a division in the council by, by crying out, Brothers, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial today. And, and the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees then were split. Right? The Pharisees wanted to support him as the son of a Pharisee, and the Sadducees still wanted to carry forth in a sentence against him. And again, the Romans needed to rescue Paul as they were afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, ripped one side to the other. No, he's on our side. He's okay. No, he's not. Let's take him out and kill him. Three times the Romans had to save Paul from being killed. That's the context of what's taking place here. You can, you can sense just the, the fear in Paul or the apprehension. I mean, he just came into Jerusalem and he's, they've tried to kill him three times. He's been rescued by the Romans. He's waiting his court appearance in the morning. He finds himself in jail at night. And we read this, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. There's the promise. We'll come back to that. Here's the promise fulfilled. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Therefore, more than 40, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, 
What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. And when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. It's a long text, but it has some things to teach us here this morning. My first point comes from verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I'm calling this the promise, and that's what it is. It's a promise from Jesus to Paul. It says in verse 11 that it's the Lord who stood by him, that is, Jesus came and stood by him and spoke with him audibly. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had spoken with him in his conversion. He had spoken with him audibly. But here it was that, that the Lord stood by him. And, and, and Paul does note in Second Timothy 4 about uh, how at his first defense all departed from him. And this, this may have been a time, kind of a, a hint the fact that, that maybe some deserted him, but, but the Lord stood by Paul. And here's the promise that, that Paul would have the opportunity to testify about Christ in Rome. I call this a promise of protection because it's a promise that he's going to survive in Jerusalem. He's already had three attacks in his life, and here Jesus is promising Paul right, that no more attacks are going to be successful against you, but you are going to make it from Jerusalem all the way to Rome exactly as he planned to do. Right? Remember back in Acts chapter 19? You can turn back there just really briefly. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 21. After serving in Ephesus for some time, for, for three years, then, then he explained his plan and what it was he was planning to do. He said, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Right? And, and, and we saw this plan unfold before our eyes. Um, he went to Macedonia and Achaia in Acts chapter 20. 
And in Acts chapter 21, he arrived in Jerusalem. And now we have the promise from the mouth of Jesus that he will indeed make it to Rome, which we will see him when we come to Acts chapter 28 when he arrives in Rome. And notice what Jesus says that he will do in Rome. So back to Acts chapter 23. He says this. He says, As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And again, we just see the, the theme of Acts emerging again, right? You've seen this over and over and over again. And when we get into our next series and our next book, um, you're going to be glad to get rid of this sign. We've seen it for almost two years. But I hope it's pound it in you, right? Acts is all about being my witness. And in here, likewise, that Jesus is calling Paul, calling all of us to be my witnesses. It's what Paul did in Jerusalem. He has testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Now, this word testify is, is in the Greek, it's diamartereo. Martereo is to witness. Diamartereo is just to thoroughly witness. He's testified of Jesus. He's given a witness of Jesus. That word is, is right there. And what Paul did in Jerusalem, he's going to do again in Rome. Now, what I found encouraging in, in this verse here is to see Paul's witnessing opportunity in Jerusalem. So you think about, what did Paul witness in Jerusalem? How did Paul give testimony in Jerusalem? Well, it consists of him giving testimony before the Jewish crowd. Right? We saw that in Acts chapter 22. Once he gets in the temple and then they arrest him and they put him up, he gives his testimony, right? his elevator pitch, if you will. Just in a short two and a half minutes, he was able to describe what he was like and how he came to Christ and how God had changed him since then. He gave his testimony for the crowd. And then, right, his witnessing activity basically confirmed the resurrection before the Jewish council. And that's about all Paul did in Jerusalem because as soon as he got there, right, he offered up this sacrifice. He went to James and just said, uh, James says, well, there's some, you know, some Christians here who might be, um, might offended by how things are. So why don't you bring this sacrifice of this Nazarite vow in the temple? And so he did that. And that's when the Jews right away got him within the first week. And then he testified, giving his testimony, and then he proclaimed his belief in the resurrection. That's all he did. And um, by the end of the chapter, we're going to see Paul out of Jerusalem, in Caesarea, and on his way to Rome. And Jesus said to him, as you've testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me, also testify in Rome. And from the best we can tell, Paul had no converts from his witnessing activity here in Jerusalem. But the Lord considered it a genuine witness because he just spoke the truth. Now, now he spoke with gentleness and with compassion, but he, he basically gave testimony to, um, to God and to Christ. And you know what? That's all that God is asking us to do. It's all Acts is calling us to do. Simply be a witness. Simply explain and tell others of your experience with Jesus and, and proclaim the resurrection and your hope for the future. You know, I mentioned last week, just being confronted in my own soul about how I failed to bring up the resurrection in my witnessing opportunities just over the um, years of whatever. Just reminded again last week of, of, of um, the priority of the resurrection. Well, I had an opportunity to speak with an unbeliever this week about the resurrection. By God's grace, it just was an opportunity. But praying, like, this is evangelism. I have a good friend of evangelism. was a great evangelist. He says, evangelism is 90% prayer. I just think if you pray and you say, I want to be a witness to the Lord, I think opportunities will come your way. And you'll have opportunities to speak with non-believers in your life. And 
I had this opportunity to speak with a man I hadn't seen for several years. I remember about five years ago when I first met him and and had seen him over the course of of a few months, over the course of time, our conversation over several months, right? At one point, he turned and asked me about being a pastor. And he was curious. He just said, well, what led you into that line of work? Here he was, not interested in Christianity at all. And so I I gave my elevator pitch. I grew up in a weak church, but was exposed to a a church that really taught the Bible verse by verse. And uh, I explained to him how just one truth really sunk deep into my heart is that when, when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, there are many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, let me into your kingdom. And, and they'll tell of all their wondrous works and Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. And I'd never been taught in all my years of church, there are people who profess to be a follower of Jesus and yet will be denied entrance into the kingdom. And it was paradigm shifting in my, my thinking, transformed my life. And I thought, of all my years at church, what else have I not heard? What else have I not learned? And the Lord gave me a deep desire to study and know the Bible. And through this church I was going to, just heard the riches of the gospel of Christ and embraced that thoroughly, how He came and died on the cross for our sins. And, and how He transforms us. He changes us by His grace to live godly lives. And I remember five years ago, um, talking to him about this, and he was very complimentary towards me. He says, he always admires people of faith. I just, that's good for you. I just admire people of faith. Well, that's five years ago. And I haven't seen him for several years, but I got to see him again this past week. And over the course of our conversation, he was telling me about his experience with people uh, regarding Christianity. And he said, you know, Steve, he said, the way I said, there, there are basically sort of three kinds of people. There, there are those who don't believe. And there are those that you maybe believe, have a weak faith, and then there are some that have a real strong faith and really ready to die for it. <laughs> like, he told me that. Like, lay it out on a platter. How much easier could it be laid about? And I was thinking about <clears throat> what I preach about this way. I preach about the resurrection. So I, I said, um, yeah, you know what? When the core of Christianity is really that you believe that Jesus Christ came and rose from the dead. Jesus Christ came, crucified for our sins, really dead, really buried, and risen from the dead. It gives us a hope that there's something beyond this life. And when you come to believe that Jesus conquered death, you're willing to die for your faith. I said, not like the jihadist is going to go and kill people for their faith and willing to be a kamikaze and, and die like that, but like a servant who will put others first and, and give them themselves sacrificially, knowing that there's something beyond this life which they're living for. And... Um, he responded, you know, I always respect and admire people of faith. <laughs> and it was that moment, actually later, when reflecting upon it, just thinking about, that's exactly what he said five years ago, and that's his whole mindset, hasn't, hasn't changed very much. <clears throat> Who knows when I'll see this man again? I don't, I don't know if I will. I may. Um, he lives in another community. Um, but it struck me, only digging in this text, that my spiritual conversations, exactly what Paul did in Jerusalem, Paul gave a short testimony for the crowds, and he gave then a brief testimony of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And that's what I did with this man. Five years ago, I gave him my testimony, and just this past week was able to affirm, be bear witness to the resurrection. And God is simply calling us to do that with our lives, to speak forth our testimony of how God has changed us. And to give witness and give affirmation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're simply called this to do this in our social sphere. It's 
what Paul was promised that he would do again in Rome. Again, verse 11. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the promise that Jesus made to Paul, the promise that he would indeed testify in Rome. There's the promise. <clears throat> now, that didn't happen right away because Paul had a rough road to get to Rome. It'd be several years before he arrived in Rome. He's going to be a prisoner this entire time. And uh, all during that time, he's just waiting, anticipating. He's going to get to Rome. He's got this promise in the back of his mind. I'm going to get to Rome. I'm not sure what he thought when he was in a cell waiting for several years before he would even venture on a trip. But I'm sure this promise probably gave him strength. Probably girded him up and strengthened him to say that, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to Rome. He, he has told me. Um, in fact, I think about how verse 11, the very first words that the Lord Jesus says to him, he says, take courage. He says, take courage. I think that's exactly what Paul needed. He was in prison, doubting what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to face those nasty Jews again, and maybe they're going to kill me. Who knows? But Paul needed courage to face the Jews. He needed courage to stand before Felix, the governor who could put him to death. He'd need courage to, to speak with Felix, as he did in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Paul would need courage to remain in two years as he awaited his hearing. He'd need courage to stand against the onslaught of his Jewish accusers. So when he finally had his day in court, they brought many and serious charges against Paul, which they couldn't prove, but still false accusations coming against him. He'd need courage to respond against them. He'd need courage to stand before King Agrippa and give his testimony, challenging him even to believe the gospel, which we'll read in Acts chapter 26. He'd need courage to be told by Agrippa, who he's sharing the gospel with. Agrippa says to him, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you crazy. You're out of your mind. He had to have courage to say, no, I'm not out of my mind, as you full well know. And he would have needed courage to endure the storm at sea before actually arriving in Rome, which we'll read about in Acts chapter 27. And truth be told, we all need courage in our Christian walk, especially when it comes to witnessing, especially when it comes to speaking with others. Have any of you ever become nervous when talking to others about Jesus? Okay, be honest now. Yes? Well, join the club. I get nervous. Because right? you're talking about like spiritual invisible things. It's strange to talk with that about people. How about this? Have you ever cowered from sharing with others about Jesus? Like, oh, I should have done that. I didn't. I kept silent. Have you done that? Well, join the club. I've done that many, many times. Have you ever missed opportunities to be a witness of Jesus because you feared rejection? Well, join the club. I have missed out on many opportunities with that. See, it takes courage to witness to others about Jesus. And here is, is Jesus telling Paul, take courage. Right? Trust. Be a man who's courageous and bold and believes. But what about this? What if you were told, and, I, and this is a personalized promise coming to you like it did to Paul, you can give witness to anybody about Jesus and you won't be killed. That was essentially his promise. You can witness all you want and you won't be killed. Um, that's what Paul's promise was from Jesus, at, at least until he gets to Rome, right? You, you can witness here in Jerusalem, and you can witness on your way, all the way up to Rome. No promises after Rome, but between now and Rome, 
You are invincible. You will not be killed. Think about that. Will that change your perspective? Okay, so I'm not sovereign. Okay, I'm not omniscient. But I can almost practically give you the same promise. You can give witness to anybody about Jesus and you will not be killed. Now, if I was in Iraq, I couldn't say that. The Stokites have no someone. I put that out in the weekly word. It was just murdered two weeks ago because of witnessing for Jesus. But here, all of you, I don't think any of you will be killed for witnessing for Jesus. I say this because I don't know personally anybody who's been killed because of talking to others about Jesus. Now, I've, I've, I've read of those who have given their life for Jesus. Uh, from the days of the Bible until now, there have been many, many who have given their life for Christ. I've read of the martyrdom from Stephen in Acts chapter 7 to Polycarp in the early church, from Hugh Latimer in uh, the time of the Reformation to John and Betty Stamm in the early 1900s. I've, I've read about them even today. People being murdered. But I have never known anyone personally who has been killed for giving their testimony to Jesus and the resurrection. You have the same promise that Paul has. Not quite in the same form. Not quite with the same specificity. Not quite with the same authority, but practically the same. Will you take courage and say, I need to witness I will be a witness of Jesus. And, and the reason why I can give that promise to you is we live in a free society that holds free speech as a fundamental right. And for the most part, our government will, will, will come to your aid. I mean, if you're being threatened for giving witness to Jesus in his resurrection, for the most part, there may be some technicalities, and you may be like, oh, no, no, not our society today. I would say, for the most part, the government will come to your aid and your support and your defense And what the curious thing about our text is that the same is true in the days of Paul. The Romans were the ones who protected Paul. In fact, all the way to Rome to ensure that he had a fair trial. In fact, John Stott points this out, that some of the grand themes and acts in these last chapters are Jewish opposition and Roman justice. Listen to what he says. He says, in Acts 21 through 23, Luke, the author of Acts, depicts the reaction to the gospel of two communities, of the Jews who were increasingly hostile to it, and of the Romans who were consistently friendly to it. The two themes of Jewish opposition and Roman justice are interwoven in Luke's narrative. Jewish opposition has been evident from the beginning of Acts. And then he, he just talks all about how the Jews just hated the gospel and how over and over again they did it. He said, and Luke consistently presents the Roman authorities as friends of the gospel and not foes. Time and time again, they, they come in and help. They're supporting justice. They're not going to dabble about words of the law. And he says this, whenever they had an opportunity, the Roman authorities defended the Christian missionaries. And that's exactly what we see here in our second point, is we see the Roman authorities defending Paul and protecting him. So even the the promise of protection in verse 11 was actually carried out by the Romans who actually protected Paul. So we've seen the promise in verse 11, and now we're going to see the carrying out of the promise with the protection of verses 12 through 35. And I guarantee I'm going to go faster through these verses than I went through verse 11. All right, I guarantee that. It's my promise to you. And the reason really is simple, because in verses 12 through 35, 
We have a story of how the Roman government protected Paul from the hostility of the Jews. And in this passage, interesting, we read nothing of Jesus. We read nothing of God. We read no parenthetical comment about how the hand of the Lord was stirring in the heart of the governor or how, how God protected them along their travels. We don't have anything like that. Nowhere does Luke insert some theological principle of teaching. Instead, this is just a story of the Romans protecting Paul. Yet, you'd be amiss if you didn't connect the story in verses 12 through 35 with the promise of verse 11. You'd be amiss if you didn't recognize the sovereignty of God protecting Paul until he reached Jerusalem. But Luke tells us of that connection in verse 11 that, that Jesus is there. All authority has been given to him and he's going to make sure that Paul comes safely to Jerusalem. <clears throat> in this way, these verses are like the story of Esther, the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And yet, a story all about the sovereignty of God in protecting the Jews from extermination at the hand of the Persians. And so likewise here, you see the sovereignty of God protecting Paul as he makes, begins to make his way to Rome. And, and truth be told, this is how God protects us today. Not, not with demonstrable miracles of deliverance, not with theological affirmations along the way, but through the natural course of life and everyday events. But never doubt for a moment that you've got the undergirding sovereignty of God behind it all. And just as Jesus stood by Paul, he stands by us. Right? Do you remember the Great Commission? Jesus said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us always. Every bit as much as he was with the early disciples, he is with us today. The promise of the New Testament is this, that Jesus lives in every believer in Christ. That, that we, as we believe in Jesus we are in Him. We are united with Him. He is in us and our lives are like intertwined. So much is He with us. Galatians 2.20 speaks about that fighter verse from a few weeks back if you've been memorizing those. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Jesus was crucified, I was crucified. And I live when I live. Christ is the one that lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And if Christ lives in you, then certainly he is with you. The one who has authority over all heaven and earth. And so you may not see his divine protection or his sovereignty or fulfilling his promises, but that's how he fulfills his promises. Because he's with us and in us. Well, let's dig into our story. And we're going to go fairly quickly here. <clears throat> when it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now, this shows how much the Jews hated Paul. They wanted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. They vowed to kill him. And they vowed to kill him soon before anyone would eat or drink again. This also shows you the danger which Paul is in. Right? I mean, just not only these attacks by the, the Jews three times, but here's a, a fourth attack coming upon him. So this promise in verse 11 is not just kind of some vain promise. Of course, 
Of course he's going to get to Rome. He's a free citizen. He's going to travel there just as well as we're going to travel to Wisconsin or to Michigan. Just as much as our families travel from one state to another during Thanksgiving, of course they will. No, there was problems and there were difficulties and there were dangers coming along. And in fact, this danger was so great that there were 40 of them that planned to murder Paul. But what is 40 against the hand of the Lord? Not very much. In verse 14, we read of their plan. So they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes to you. Deceitful plans, for sure. And these words, right, they brought some council members in on their plans. The chief priests, by the way, the chief priests were part of the Sadducees. Because they, they were the, the, the liberals and they were the ones who were the chief priests primarily. They would have loved to see Paul killed. And all the more willing to help with this plan. Right? Because the chief and, and the chief priests and the elders, when they heard about this ambush, I'm sure that they were more than willing to give consent. I mean, after all, their hands would be clean of the murder. I mean, their only role was to call Paul to the council. They'd have perfect alibi we just called him to the council. We didn't know what's going to happen all the way. They didn't have news about where it's going to happen or what exactly is going to happen, but they knew it was going to happen. They knew that these hit men were going to take care of him. And then when he died, they probably would have said, wow, what a tragedy, and maybe shall shed um, a false tear. But the best laid plans are easily thwarted by the Lord. Proverbs twenty-one thirty: no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And in this case, the Lord used Paul's nephew, to help in the protection. We see that in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul about it. Now the son of Paul's sister, right? that is then Paul's nephew, if you will. We don't know anything about this fellow. We don't know his name, don't know his age, though we simply know he's a young man. He's referred to that several times in verse 17 and 18. And I think there's another place. But somehow, this young man, in his circle of knowledge, heard of this, this plot to, to, uh, to kill Paul. You know, I, I think the problem was that this was a big secret. You know what a big secret is, right? It's a secret held by lots and lots of people. And as that circle went out bigger and bigger and bigger, somehow it reached his ears. And he's like, oh, they're going to kill my Uncle Paul? That's not good. And so he went to see his, his Uncle Paul and he told him, of the plan to kill him. And so Paul responds in verse 17. He says, this is not good. (laughs) This is not good. So Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for something to tell him. And now at this point, I trust you can see how Paul dealt with a promise of protection. He didn't view it as so absolute that he didn't do anything. He just remains passive. Oh, I got this promise. Great. I'll just sit in here. No, I won't do anything. I'll just say, I have this promise. I'm going to speak in Rome. Not how it is. It's a promise that then he, Paul, becomes partially the fulfillment of it by sending this man to the, um, to the governor, to the tribune. Paul acted in a way that would save his life. He sent this man to the, the tribune, and, and now the fact this centurion carried through with Paul's request just shows a bit of the, the cordial relationship that Paul had with the Roman authorities. 
I mean, it was antagonistic totally with the, with the, the, the Jews, but with the Romans, I, they, they understood a bit how he's wrongly imprisoned and how it's completely cordial. It demonstrates the Romans actually being supportive of Paul. Saying, okay, well, if this is going to help you, I will do that. In verse 18, we read about how he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner has called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. It's like a, a note sent to the judge. Right? I mean, just, just kind of say, hey, uh, can you help with this? And, and the tribune then took this young man by the hand and going aside, ask him privately, what is it you have to tell me? Now, at this point, right, we're the further hint to this, the age of Paul's nephew, right? Because if I go to a man, you know, maybe someone in authority, I don't think he's going to take me by the hand and lead me quietly and say, okay, so, so, so tell me, what is this news? But a, a young man or a boy, an 8-year-old, a 12-year-old, you might, might treat that way. But the tribune is very sensitive to him, very... Um, very compassionate with him. And I would suspect it's only done with a, a youngster. So this young man, this youngster, right? You can only be, be encouraged by how he acted courageously in working out the plan of God. This young man was used by the Lord to save Paul's life. The sovereignty of God. All the people spreading the news about what's going to happen, trying to keep it a secret. It slipped out a little bit, but this was the rescue. This boy. Just like Esther was the rescue of the Jews. Verse 20 tells us what Paul's nephew said to the tribune. He said in verse 20, he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. 21, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for them who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. Now he communicated a short story almost exactly, and he pleaded with the tribune, don't side with them, don't believe them. What a courage this young man had. The tribune then believed him. He dismissed him, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Let's protect the man. Protect this youngster. For, for surely, right, 40 men, if their plans were thwarted, and they were hungry and thirsty, right? they, they would have figured out, would have lurked hard to try to figure out what the leak was. And then the, the tribune went into action. He called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. It's quite an order. He's heard of these 40 men going to come and ambush. And he says, um, okay, 200 soldiers ready to fight, 70 horsemen, and some more mounts, plural, for Paul. So maybe it's Paul and maybe some of his, his friends as well. We don't exactly know. 200 spearmen, special soldiers armed with a large spear. That's 470 soldiers to escort Paul to Caesarea where he would be safe from the Jews. Why so many? I don't know. Other than perhaps to affirm that God's protection is abundant. They have 40 attacking. I'll just go tenfold. We'll go 400. Remember Jesus? When he was attacked, when Peter started fighting, he said, no, I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion 6,000. 
I called out 72,000 angels. And, and, and one angel wiped out 186,000 Assyrians at one point. So just do the math. So we see these 400 men, these 470 soldiers, leaving at the third hour of the night. Night began at 6 p.m. at dark, and so the third hour of the night, you're talking about 9 o'clock. And under the cover of darkness, they brought Paul to safely, away from those waiting ambush to take his life was the plan. But before they went, um, the Tribune also wrote a note with Felix, right? And, and just like uh, you would write a note on your, 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 your kindergartner's you know, back of the shirt for uh, the teacher in the morning, right? Remind him to whatever, eat, eat his snack at 10 o'clock, right? Here's a little note that he attached and he safety pinned in the back of Paul. He wrote this to Felix, the governor, to give him context of why he was sent to Caesarea. And, and Luke uh, didn't, didn't have the note, but he explained the gist of the note. That's why I said, verse 25, he wrote a letter to this effect. Like, here's the effect of what, what he wrote. Not exactly it, but here it is. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. Here we find the, the name of this tribune we've been talking about for a while. This claim is Claudius Lysias. This is the one who commanded the rescue of Paul on a number of occasions, tried to figure out why the Jews were so angry at him. Um, finally, then he sees his excuse, right? Just, just pass it off. I can't handle this quite, so let's give it to Caesarea. His name is Claudius Lysias. To His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. Felix was the governor of Caesarea. And we'll read about him more in, in Acts chapter 24. And then he explains. He says, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but, uh, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to stand uh, before you, to state before you what they have against him. Now, if you know the whole story, you know that this guy wasn't exactly accurate. He, he takes credit for some things that he didn't exactly do himself. And he says nothing about how he ordered Paul to be tortured, says he was a Roman citizen. But, of course, that's politics, right? You always lift yourself up in the best light possible, and that's, that's what he did. The, the sentiment, however, is, is fair of the gist of the, the note, and what took place is then given in verse 31. This is when the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. So Antipatris is a city about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about halfway to Caesarea. And so you've got the whole, the whole squad, 470 of them, going up to Antipatris. And then by then, at that point, then the rest, the horsemen, continue on their way, and the soldiers then return to Jerusalem. And um, why they didn't all go up there, I'm not exactly sure. I think they saw that, hey, there's no threat. Once they got out of Jerusalem, those 40 guys weren't going to follow 470. They're totally safe and free, and they're confident that he was going to be delivered unto, uh, unto Felix. And Paul was received well. When they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked, that is the government, asked what province he was from. And we learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And here we see Paul safe and sound in Caesarea, though still under arrest in Herod's praetorium. That's his palace. 
Um, you know, there are dungeons in the basement of every castle, and in the basement of the palace there were some some dungeons as well, and, and that's where he was he was kept safe. And here we see Jesus really being faithful to the first part of his promise. He's going to bring Paul to Rome, but so far he's just brought him to Caesarea. In the new year, right, we're going to get back. I'm going to start a Christmas series next week. We're going to see Jesus fulfill the promise and eventually land in Rome. That's the promise of Paul. Now, again, I remind you, we don't have such specific promises to us. But we have plenty of promises in the Bible, and we can hold on to those promises just as well as Paul held on to this promise of protection. And we see the Lord being faithful and protecting Paul all the way to Jerusalem. And he'll be faithful to you with the promises. Now, I have those same dozen promises here. I just want to close with, like, thinking about what, what's a promise that you hold on to? Um, <clears throat> Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a promise. Find your delight in the Lord, and he'll give you your desires, which would be godly desires. How about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Right? Adriana, I know you've claimed this verse. This is like, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He'll make straight your paths. Right? Trust in the Lord, not your own ingenuity, your own thought. God will make straight your paths. How about this one? Romans 8, 38-39. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. How about that one? You trusting in that promise today? How about Psalm 23, verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. How about one? Uh, here's just another. I've got several more, but I'll just close with this one. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Right. So in your anxiety, right, whatever it is that's, that's surrounding you, right, just make that known to God. And God has a promise for you. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just cast your burdens upon the Lord. He will sustain you. Psalm 55. Cast your cares upon the Lord. The promise is, is peace. So I would encourage you to look in the Bible for, for promises that you know uh, right, was, was applicable to the people who first heard it, but then extends to you for sure. Because there are some promises like this one that doesn't extend to you. You don't have a promise to be in Rome. <laughs> that would be a wrong way to take the Scripture. Oh, I, I'm going to testify in Jerusalem. I'm going to testify in Rome. I don't think so. Many of us won't ever be in Jerusalem or Rome. I've been in Jerusalem, but I've never been in Rome. But I'm not going to claim this promise. Let me get to Rome before I pass away. But there are promises that are there for you. And here we saw an example of a promise of protection. God was faithful to that. He'll be faithful to keep his promises. So let's trust in that. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would make us to be people of faith who are going to trust in you, trust in your promises. Not all of us are different situations in life. Different things happened this past week. Different circumstances are around us even this past month and years and our families are different and our jobs are different and our 
financial situations are different and the, the trials we face are different. And, and yet, God, you are, are the same yesterday and today and forever. And those things you have promised in your word will be true. They will be true of us. God, you'll be faithful to us as we simply seek to walk towards your ways and to, to trust in you with our whole heart for all of our lives. God, you will be faithful to us. And so God would, would pray that you would strengthen us. God, to be courageous like Paul was, like Paul was commanded to, like, like this young boy was. I pray even for the young men in our congregation that they would be courageous like him, that you would use them, O oh God, for your, your plans and your purposes to accomplish your means and your ends. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.